the biggest story of 2023 could still be the biggest story of 2024 as the genocide in Gaza continues. Since we last spoke, the calls for a ceasefire have continued to grow from all corners of the world. Those calls for a ceasefire have also been met with rejection by those who have the ability to end the slaughter. There have also been two major developments. First, the killing of Salah al-Aruri in Beirut on January 2nd. And secondly, South Africa's genocide filing against Israel at the International Court of Justice at The Hague in the Netherlands. This week, we look at the killing of the deputy Hamas leader and what it means for the prospects of the violence in Gaza developing into a wider regional conflict and how South Africa's filing could help end the violence and hold Israel accountable for their actions in Gaza and against the Palestinian people. My name is Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. To start, a quick update on the situation in Gaza. On January 12th, the Ministry of Health in Gaza reported that at least 23,812 civilians have been killed in Gaza since the start of the war. Of those killed, about 70% are women and children. That equates to more than 7,000 women and more than 10,000 children. They also estimated that more than 8,000 civilians are missing under the rubble and are unable to be recovered due to the ongoing Israeli airstrikes. 63,572 have been injured, the large majority children. In addition to the violence, the humanitarian situation is getting worse by the hour. On January 10th, the director of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom, gave a press conference to reporters. The situation is indescribable. Almost 90% of the population of Gaza, 1.9 million people, have been displaced and many have been forced to move multiple times. People are standing in line for hours for a small amount of water, which may not be clean, or bread, which alone is not sufficiently nutritious. He continued, The lack of clean water and sanitation and overcrowded living conditions are creating the ideal environment for disease to spread. Delivering humanitarian aid in Gaza continues to face nearly insurmountable challenges. With an average of 247 Palestinians being killed every day, the violence in Gaza is deeply distressing. All efforts must be made to end the violence, but with the start of the new year, it was quite the opposite, when a greater number of voices started talking about the prospects of the violence escalating into a greater regional conflict. Much of this talk was prompted by the killing of Salah al-Aruri in the southern district of the Lebanese capital, Beirut, on January 2nd. An eyewitness at the scene described what he saw. Because of the size of the explosion, we ran towards it. We saw body parts on the ground and cars on fire and the flat upstairs that was struck. There are a lot of body parts on the ground following the explosion. 
Salah al-Aruri was the deputy chief of Hamas's political bureau and one of the founders of the Qassam Brigades, the group's military wing. After serving a 15-year prison sentence in Israel, he moved to Lebanon, where he lived in exile. His killing was confirmed by Hamas chief Ismail Haniyeh. Haniyeh accused Israel of the assassination and described the killing as a, quote, terrorist act and also a, quote, violation of Lebanese sovereignty. Uh, what we have seen has been a kind of uh, phased escalation, which started with basically Hezbollah getting involved with rather limited engagement uh, northern Israel, and then expanding further southward, and then uh, Iraqi groups, the Houthis, also, you know, uh, getting involved and increasing their kind of activities. This is Dr. Hamad Reza Azizi, a visiting fellow at the German Institute for International Security Affairs. So in a sense, the danger, the risk of a wider war uh, was already there. And it has just kind of uh, become more serious over the past few weeks due to not only the assassination of Salah al-Aruri, uh, but also the uh, Iranian Quds Force commander Razi Musavi in Syria and uh, a number of top-ranking Hezbollah commanders in uh, Lebanon South. The killing of Aruri was widely reported around the world and marked a significant moment in the conflict. But simultaneously, it wasn't an outlier, but a continuation of attacks that have happened on a number of occasions since the start of the conflict. These people include the likes of Razi Muzavi, an Iranian general, and more recently with Tawil, a prominent Hezbollah commander, to name a few. I wouldn't uh, say that that specific incident, uh, the, the assassination of Aruri, uh, was a turning point. This was just a manifestation of what we were already uh, seeing, and uh, of course, uh, the accumulation of all these kind of uh, smaller but incrementally increasing tensions have led us to where we are right now. As tensions and the odds of a wider conflict have increased, all eyes are on Lebanon, and more specifically, Hezbollah. A quick recap on Hezbollah. They are a popular, Shia-led Lebanese political party who also have a formidable and well-equipped military wing. They also have strong links with Iran, who have supported them both financially and materially since their inception. They are led by Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah. Hezbollah is known to have committed a number of attacks targeting Israelis and Israeli institutions around the world. They successfully fought off Israel during the 2006 war in Lebanon and also played a prominent role in supporting Syrian President Bashar al-Assad during the Syrian civil war, where the group became battle-hardened and confident in using modern weapon systems and engaging in combined arms warfare. As a result of their actions, they have been branded as a terrorist organization by many nations around the world. But in Lebanon, they garner a wide level of support and are currently part of the biggest bloc of parties in the Lebanese parliament but are short of a majority. Given their intense opposition to the state of Israel and their geographic proximity, it was anticipated that any expansion of the war, or a second front, would unfold on the border between Israel and Lebanon. There is already a low-level conflict there. Hezbollah has launched projectiles and Israel has conducted airstrikes. And well over 100 people have been killed some Hezbollah fighters and some innocent civilians. 
including Lebanese journalists. And yet the comprehensive response from Hezbollah, say in the form of a strategic strike against Israel, has not yet come. Why? First of all, it's about uh, Hezbollah's own considerations with regard to its standing within Lebanon and uh, in the Lebanese society. And uh, closely related to that, of course, is the very fragile domestic situation in Lebanon and the basic fact that the country cannot bear another uh, devastating war, uh, let alone a big war with Israel that would most probably involve the United States as well. So. For that reason, probably Nasrallah uh, looks inward and sees that, you know, the potential is not there if they want to escalate things into a bigger war or uh, better to say, if they want to take the initiative, you know, in kind of bringing this whole thing into a new level, into a comprehensive war, then he may lose part of his own social support base. A war between Israel and Hezbollah would be devastating for Lebanon. Even if Hezbollah could emerge on top, Lebanon would still lose. The country is economically broke, and a war would be a deeply unpopular move. Even among Hezbollah's supporters, there is no guarantee that you could find support for a war with Israel. The fact that uh, Iran neither wants itself to you know, enter into a war with uh, Israel or the United States, nor does it want to see Hezbollah involved? Because at the end of the day, compared to other uh, so-called resistance groups in the region, Hezbollah is the jewel in the crown for Iran. And, uh, you know, their uh, interests are closely tied to each other. Uh, so for that reason, uh, and also because Hezbollah's role is only comparable to Iran within this whole network of the axis of resistance in terms of uh, its capacities in Uh, command and control of other smaller groups and also, you know, in making consensus between different groups. So uh, Hezbollah needs to uh, take into account uh, the wider uh, regional context as well. A war between Hezbollah and Israel would very likely draw in the US, which Iran does not want to see. Additionally, a war has the potential to severely limit Hezbollah's capabilities to spread Iranian influence in the region which, again, Iran does not want. If you look at the narrative that comes from uh, not only Hezbollah and Iran, but you know from all these uh, Axis members, uh, they are basically depicting themselves as, as the victors of this whole thing. And, uh, you know, they point to quite a few elements, like Israel's image as undefeatable uh, force in the region shrinking with it, its uh, intelligence superiority, all these sort of things. It is also believed that a war between Israel and Hezbollah would damage the narrative of the axis of resistance, which is that in Gaza there is currently a war between the Israeli army and civilians. They would be a war between uh, two equals like Israel and Iran or Israel and Hezbollah. And they don't want to change this uh, kind of, uh, um, especially this international uh, perception of, of the war and the condemnations against Israel. Despite all the talk, Hezbollah is unlikely to open a second front in the war. If Israeli attacks on southern Lebanon or if targeted assassinations escalate, Hassan Nasrallah might find himself in a position where he feels he has no choice but to attack strategic targets in Israel in order to protect both the image and reputation of Hezbollah and himself. Currently, we are not at that point. So if not Hezbollah, what about their paymasters? 
What about Iran, Israel's fiercest opponent? I would say there's absolutely zero prospect for Iran's direct involvement in the war unless it is attacked like publicly by, uh, uh, by Israel. So this is something that, uh, you know, we can set as a rule. And uh, there's quite a few reasons for that. You know, first of all, I mean, just like the case of Hezbollah, or even more evident than that, the Iranian leaders know that, you know, uh, the society cannot afford the war, especially in the case of Iran, because of the growing discontent with the regime and the very gloomy economic prospects of the country, the social unrest that have been there. So... And the last thing I would say that the Iranian leaders may want uh, would be to have a war that would uh, further weaken their stance domestically and then uh, pave the way for uh, more to come, either uh, from within or uh, without. The past couple of years have been difficult for the Iranian regime in Tehran, who have struggled financially and seen intense protests against their rule, particularly in the wake of the murder of Masa Amini. And then also, you know, if you look at the very concept of the forward defense that Iran has uh, developed as the uh, foundation of its uh, military strategy, it is basically, uh, it has always been uh, based on asymmetric deterrence. Asymmetric deterrence in the sense of, uh, you know, having uh, militia groups, this uh, axis of resistance, they're in the region engaging directly uh, with the groups uh, so that Iran will enjoy plausible deniability. And, of course, not to mention that the uh, internal dynamics of the axis has changed. But, you know, this, its function, at least as, as long as Iran is concerned, uh, is still the same. Regionally, the Iranian regime is heavily reliant on militia groups. Even in Syria, where they were heavily involved, it was the militias directed by Iran who did much of the heavy lifting, so to speak. Furthermore, when it comes to the prospect of an invasion, the Iranian army just isn't built that way. Iranian armed forces are not built for a war that would be uh, involve a massive invasion, so for them to take initiative for a war. In essence, Iranian armed forces are built, I mean, both the regular army and the IRGC, are built for defending the country and limited engagements via asymmetric uh, tools uh, abroad, like kind of limited missile attacks and, and the use of proxies. So for that reason, I'm saying that uh, there's absolutely zero prospect for Iran directly getting involved. Hezbollah currently appears unlikely to open a front with Israel, and a direct invasion of Israel by Iran is a very distant prospect. But that does not mean that violence across the region will not rise and is not rising. If you look away from Israel and to the assets of Israel's biggest supporter, the U.S., then you can see where efforts are being directed. Uh, especially in Iraq and, and in Syria, the U.S. interests and the U.S. troops are attacked uh, on a daily basis by uh, the Iran-backed militias, mostly those operating in Iraq. So this is uh, likely to escalate. The U.S. has military bases in both of these countries, in Iraq since their 2003 invasion and in Syria since their war against ISIS. And I would... Uh, go even further and say that, you know, because the war in Gaza seems not to basically have a decisive end in the sense that there is no sign that Hamas would be totally destroyed the way that uh, Israel wants. And on the other hand, other basically members of this network like Iran and Hezbollah uh, don't want to enter into a war. So considering these factors, even if 
we survive the risk of a, an intended escalation as a result of these recent uh, moves, then in a medium to longer term, we will have a more unstable region in the sense that, of course, Israel, on the one hand, wants to uh, regain the face and, and the prestige and, and the deterrence uh, power, more, most importantly, that it lost uh, through targeting all high-ranking members of this group. And we have... Uh, we have already had a lot of examples in the past uh, in terms of Israeli-targeted assassinations, so that will be increased uh, most probably. And on the other side, of course, on the side of Iran and others, uh, they will also double down on their kind of limited but constant engagement with American targets because simply because they are more accessible and also as much as they can or wherever they can with uh, the Israeli targets. So that's how I see it. And by Hamid Reza's estimates, it will be Iraq who will be the focus of Iran's attention. And uh, not only, again, because uh, the U.S. forces are more accessible there, also because Iraq has a totally different value as a country for Iran. You know, of course, we all talk about Hezbollah as the most valuable ally for Iran. And geographically speaking, you know, accessing to Lebanon and Syria in terms of being uh, close to Israel. But... Back to Iran's deterrence and, and defense strategy, Iraq as a neighbor, keeping it friendly or neutral or in the best case scenario, and this is something that we've been witnessing more or less increasing since uh, 2003, a country under Iranian influence. Uh, in that sense, there's a kind of at least two aspects to uh, the engagement of Iran-backed militias in Iraq with the United States. On one hand, of course, you know, uh, keeping this up, and uh, continuing this game of balancing deterrence or balance of deterrence. And on the other hand, and for Iran, of course, in the best case scenario, further providing the ground for the removal of U.S. forces and cementing its own influence in that country. As we've discussed, unless calculations change fairly drastically, then direct action against Israel is unlikely to come from either Hezbollah or Iran. There is, of course, the other side to this, which is Israel. While Hezbollah may not invade Israel, Israel could invade Lebanon. And conditions for such an action are falling in their favour. They are, to some extent at least, done with Gaza. Uh, the northern Gaza is you know, almost totally destroyed. And uh, they have uh, shifted their approach to more targeted operations further towards uh, southern Gaza. So it means that more resources, more soldiers are uh, becoming available uh, for potential operation uh, in the north. So in a sense, Hezbollah has lost the momentum. If they wanted to open the second front, they should have done so already in the first couple of weeks or let's say first month. Uh, now it's Israel that's uh, you know basically calling the shots uh, when it comes to uh, the second front, I would say. There are reasons to think that Israel could invade Lebanon. Several Israeli politicians have been actively calling for a second front to be opened. And just recently, on January 7th, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warned that it could very well happen. I recommend that Hezbollah learns from what Hamas has already learned in recent months. No terrorist is immune. We are determined to defend our civilians and to return residents of the north safely to their homes. It's a national objective shared by all of us, and we are working responsibly to achieve it. 
If we can, we will do it diplomatically, and if not, we will act in other ways. Comments made by Israeli politicians and, of course, the actions of Israel in Gaza have been the focus of the second Gaza-related development. It will make a huge difference the fact that the state of Israel is held to account by the international community. The soldiers, they know, the authorities in Israel, they know that if they continue, they may one day be called even before the ICC individually and be held accountable. So the message is clear, they must cease, they must desist from the acts of genocide. This was Ronald Lamola, Pretoria's Justice Minister, speaking outside the International Court of Justice at The Hague on January 11th. The court was sitting to hear the case filed by South Africa against Israel. South Africa is accusing Israel of violating the Genocide Convention, effectively committing genocide against the people of Gaza specifically. This is May El-Sadani, the executive director of the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. In its complaint, it lays out an argument as to why and how uh, it believes that genocide has been committed, that Israel has failed to carry out its duty to prevent genocide from taking place. And it notably highlights a number of arguments as to why this case demonstrates genocidal intent. The complaint itself is ripe with almost 10 to 11 uh, pages of statements indicating the intent of Israeli officials that would suggest that genocide has taken place, if not already, then certainly is about to take place. Those 10 to 11 pages are just the statements of Israeli officials, but the filing is much longer. So there's two different parts, I would say. There's the argument as to what is happening on the ground, and that unfortunately has been verified extensively by independent journalists, by media outlets. The application, which is what we call the complaint in this case, is 84 pages. It is well documented. There are extensive footnotes that cite to a whole host of things. This includes the daily coverage of journalists, from inside Gaza, but also around the world. Um, This includes the work of civil society organizations that have done documentation work. There are a few organizations that continue to document on the ground, but this also includes UN statements, official statements from UN special rapporteurs, from uh, heads of UN entities talking about what's happening, what they've seen with their own eyes. Um, And this certainly also does include the statements of Israeli officials. This this is a second part that's intended to prove genocidal intent. The case against Israel appears to be comprehensive, detailed and damning. In its filings, all manner of horrors have been documented. The tragedy of Gaza heard in the court and the manner in which Israel and its army have conducted themselves and their military actions will be judged. But this isn't Israel's first tango with international law. So I think this is a unique case. Certainly Israel has been brought to um, the ICJ before, which is the International Court of Justice, for those who don't know. And the issue of the occupation, the issue of other violations are being heard, have been heard by this court previously. But this is also unique because it is a case that is being heard in the midst of what is being described as an ongoing genocide, if not genocide in the making. And so this case 
has the potential to impact the trajectory of what we are seeing on the ground. And I think that's what's really important about this case. On the first day of hearings, we heard impassioned, engaging and powerful statements. Like this from Adila Hassim, a lawyer presenting South Africa's Gaza genocide case at the ICJ. In the first three weeks alone, following 7 October, Israel deployed 6,000 bombs per week. At least 200 times it has deployed 2,000-pound bombs in southern areas of Palestine designated as safe. These bombs have also decimated the north, including refugee camps. 2,000-pound bombs are some of the biggest and most destructive bombs available. They are dropped by lethal fighter jets that are used to strike targets on the ground by one of the world's most resourced armies. Israel has killed an unparalleled and unprecedented number of civilians with the full knowledge of how many civilian lives each bomb will take. A powerful message, but sadly not powerful enough on its own to stop Israel's unceasing violence. But what's really meaningful in this case is that South Africa has requested what are called provisional measures. And these are temporary measures that the court can impose on Israel that get at the heart of the behavior in this complaint and that would require Israel to stop the behavior that is indicated in the provisional measures. These can look like a variety of different things. They can obligate Israel to stop the violence. They can obligate Israel to stop targeting civilians, stop targeting journalists, stop targeting certain houses of worship. They can really be extensive. They can also obligate Israel to hold accountable individuals that are found to commit violations from within their ranks. It can obligate Israel to preserve evidence. These measures are important because they have the potential to build momentum toward a ceasefire. And that's what we desperately need in this moment is a stop to this horrific violence that does fly in the face of international law, but also against basic sense of humanity. And recognizing the urgency of the case, a judgment on these provisional measures could come soon. It will likely issue a decision within one to two weeks on these provisional measures. And when these provisional measures are issued, they will be binding on Israel. And this is where there is room then to take these measures and build them into the pressure campaigns that we're seeing around the world to push for mobilization toward a ceasefire, but also beyond that point to push for some modicum of accountability as well. If the provisional measures requested by South Africa are granted at the ICJ, then this will be a momentous day for the war in Gaza and the Palestinians who have endured so much. The measures will, however, require compliance. So while these measures and any decision issued from the court are binding, they cannot be appealed, the countries are obligated to follow them, we certainly have cases of non-compliance. South Africa can then choose to go to the UN Security Council and bring Israel's non-compliance to um, the council. And then it can request, and and the council actually has the legal authority to take measures that would obligate Israel to enforce these mechanisms. The issue, of course, as you might anticipate, is that the US has unfortunately abused its veto power 
in support of Israel to the detriment of human rights values and principles. And so that's likely going to be expected. If Israel's non-compliance does push this issue to the UN Security Council, then the US will have to make a decision. And it is vitally important that it sides with its humanitarian obligations. The United States has a critical role to play. Unfortunately, it's played that role in a very negative way for the protection of human rights and international law. And so we have to find a way in order to be able to use these tactics and tools to create pressure on the United States to change the way in which it engages its discourse, to really go back to the values that it says it holds dear. Um, And so everyone is really thinking about this, strategizing about it. There is no way forward without the United States, even in the face of the fact that here we have South Africa, a country that has experienced apartheid firsthand bringing this case. And I want to underscore how symbolically meaningful that is. The filing at the ICJ is part of a legal campaign of accountability. It's also a pressure campaign. With its filing, South Africa has accused Israel of some of the worst crimes imaginable. It has presented a case to the world and it asks the question, do you support this? Will you stand up and say enough or will you stand by and allow the violence to continue? Mayal Sadani believes it serves a third purpose. It's significant because it is a documentation of what is happening And that is critically important when every day we're being bombarded with headlines. And so it's difficult often to step back and see what's happening at a macro scale. It's hard to see the trends. And so this complaint, this application and the hearings tomorrow will do a great job really laying out what has really happened. And that is important for documentation, for historical purposes, but also to give credence and and to spotlight and to, to do a little bit of justice to the lived realities of the people of Gaza, who are often being ignored, whose voices are not reaching policymakers, who are often subject to erasure or censorship in the face of Israeli misinformation and disinformation campaigns about what's happening. And so the documentation and memorialization portion of this case cannot be underscored. It is critically important for the now, but it is also critically important for the future. The tragedy in Gaza must be addressed, and it must be addressed today. That is what the filing at the International Court of Justice is hoping to do. The future is also vitally important for the Palestinians and humanity. Um, It's about refusing the normalization of of Israel's crimes, Um, saying that any or any state that commits these types of violations, irrespective of who it is and who its allies are, should expect to be brought before the world's highest court and held to account and for their record to be impugned. And these are all critically important objectives as well. Final words to Bliné Negrale, an Irish lawyer working with South Africa, speaking on the first day of hearings at the International Court of Justice at The Hague. In a powerful sermon delivered from a church in Bethlehem on Christmas Day, the same day Israel had killed 250 Palestinians, including at least 86 people, many from the same family, massacred in a single strike on Magazi refugee camp. Palestinian pastor Munzer Ishak addressed his congregation and the world, and he said, and I quote, 
Gaza as we know it no longer exists. This is an annihilation. This is a genocide. We will rise. We will stand up again from the midst of destruction as we have always done as Palestinians. Although this is by far maybe the biggest blow we have received in a long time. But we will be okay. But for those who are complicit, I feel sorry for you. Will you ever recover from this? Your charity and your words of shock after the genocide won't make a difference. And I know these words of shocks are coming. And I know people will give generously for charity. But your words won't make a difference. Words of regret won't suffice for you. And let me say it, we will not accept your apology after the genocide. What has been done has been done. I want you to look at the mirror and ask, where was I when Gaza was going through a genocide? This episode of the New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodridge. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.